Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. So, hello and welcome everybody for this Forum for Philosophy event on the subject of tranquility. My name is Roman Frick and I will be your chair for this session. Now, many of us live very busy lives and we often find ourselves struggling with our commitments and our duties. Indeed, the UK seems to be a rather stressed nation. In a recent survey, 74% of the population say that they were overwhelmed or unable to cope at some point over the past year. When we find ourselves in such a situation, we desire only one thing, namely tranquility. We want to leave the stress and the noise and the tensions and the worries of our lives behind us and enter into a peaceful and calm and serene state of mind. So tranquility is something that many of us actively desire. Um, However, The longing for tranquility is nothing new, and it has not come into existence as a result of the pressures of modern life. Indeed, a look at the history of thought shows that tranquility plays a central role in many philosophical and religious um, traditions that go back to centuries and millennia. It appears in ancient Greek philosophy, it appears in Buddhism, it appears in Christianity, to mention but a few. And in these traditions, it has been seen not only as a way to escape the hustle and bustle of everyday life, but more importantly, also as a path to enlightenment, peace and spirituality. Well, if you're now losing your tranquility over the many different and seemingly conflicting meanings of the term tranquility, then you're exactly in the right place. In the panel today, we start by asking, what is tranquility and why is it good? We then explore questions of how we can achieve tranquility And we then finally reflect on the role that tranquility plays or should play in our personal lives. Where is it helpful? Where is it unhelpful? And indeed, what can tranquility mean in a world that is full of disasters like the COVID-19 pandemic or the war in Ukraine? I'm very excited to be joined in that conversation by three world-renowned experts on the subject matter of tranquility. So we we welcome Liam Kofi Bright, who is an assistant professor of philosophy here at LSE. He usually works on social epistemology, but he's also interested in tranquility, not least because, so he tells me, he would like to have a bit of tranquility in his own life. And in the panel today, he approaches the topic of tranquility from the point of view of the Neo-Confucian tradition. Our second panelist is Zina Hitz, who is a tutor at St. John's College. She is the author of the book Lost in Thought, 
the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life in which she explores the meaning and the value of learning for its own sake. In the panel today, she approaches the topic from the point of view of a Christian spiritual tradition. And finally, we have Alex Verhoeven, who is a professor of philosophy also here at the LSE. He usually works on the theory and practice of justice and moral psychology, and he approaches the topic of tranquility from the point of view of the Epicurean tradition in ancient philosophy. So our three panelists will discuss for about one hour, and at the end of that discussion, you will have a chance to ask your own question to the panelists. We will be leaving around 15 minutes for this, and the session will end at 7.15. To submit your question, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and you will find instructions of how to use this feature in the chat. You can also tweet about the event by using the hashtag LSE forum. And finally, I should mention that this event is being recorded in the hope of producing a podcast of it later on, so long we don't run up against any technical problems. So that's enough from me. Without further ado, let's delve into tranquility and start with the question, what is tranquility and why is it good? And I would like to ask Liam to get us started on this. Hi. Um, so I'm sure that all of the traditions we'll be talking about today, Neo-Confucianism, Christian spirituality, Epicureanism, would tell me not to worry, to let it pass, it's okay. But, you know, I'm, I'm but a sinner and I'm just kind of, I'm not an assistant professor. I'm an associate professor. You just promoted me, Roman. You, you, you forget oh. these things. <laughs> So um, I'm very sorry, Liam. <laughs> I know, like, well, you know, what people are going to think they're listening to some schmuck, but it's not, it's associate professor. Okay, so let me bring out my notes. Um, hi, so I'm going to be uh, sort of speaking from the point of view of the Neo-Confucian tradition. This is a school of thought that was very influential in China during uh, roughly the 12th to the 17th centuries. And I'm going to uh, occasionally illustrate my points by talking about a particular Confucian scholar, um, Wu Yubi. He was a, he was a teacher of Neo-Confucianism in the 14th century, and he left us his diaries. And his diaries were really interesting because he was someone who, he was trying to become a sage and to become a sage, he sort of wanted to achieve tranquility, and I'll explain in a second. And so we get like a very personal vision of what it is to achieve tranquility in this tradition and why, why that was valued by people there. So let's begin this idea of a sage. You've got to, to get to why, what tranquility is and why it's good, you actually have to understand the sage for Neo-Confucians. According to Neo-Confucianism, a sage is um, like the ideal to which we should all be aspiring. And there's something egalitarian about this. It's important for Neo-Confucians that all of us, anyone, whatever your sort of race, ethnicity, gender, whatever your station in life, everyone can aspire, can reasonably hope to become a sage. Like the, the ideal is open to anyone. And what is that ideal? Well, it's someone who's sort of like perfectly adept at responding to situations in a way that will bring about as much sort of benevolent harmony as possible, which is to say they're always trying to make the world and society more loving and peaceful. And everything they do is like the best you could do in that situation towards achieving that goal. And a sage is someone who just kind of has a knack for it. They're, whatever they do, it's always just perfectly calibrated. And according to Neo-Confucianism, 
any of us, if we put the effort in, we could become that kind of person that, that really is all that high ideal. It's not easy. They thought it would probably take a lifetime. It's only the elderly who they really thought realistically would achieve it. But um, if we tried, all of us could become so skilled that with our every word and deed, we're always making the world just a little bit better or doing the best we can at least. And tranquility is relevant to the sage-like figure um, because it's an important part of how you become a sage. Now, they did actually think the sage would be kind of tranquil because the sage is always doing the best they can and knows that of themselves and so it's always kind of content. But while they focused more on tranquility was not so much as like a goal to be achieved, but as a, as a means to that end. Because despite how high-minded this idea of a sort of perfect sage might sound, Confucianism and Neo-Confucianism is actually a very um, down-to-earth, this worldly kind of philosophy. And when it comes to tranquility, for them, it's kind of just what you might guess from the word, even in what we translate to tranquility, a sort of a state of pleasant, unhurried calm, feeling of being relaxed and at ease in an environment which is comfy, with time to reflect and no pressures or worries distracting you. And they thought that like that state, pleasant as it sounds, is not just in itself a nice way to be, but also making time to regularly achieve tranquility, putting aside time where you can be in that kind of calm and hard state was a really important part of moral development for anyone. Why is that? Well, there were sort of two main reasons which they would give. Um, first, they thought, and again, it's sort of common sense, you thought, that when you're in that kind of environment, when it's calm, you're unhurried, you don't have to feel defensive. The world isn't at your, isn't at your face, in, all in your face, trying to pick a fight with you. Then that's a time when you can reflect. That's a time when you can use that to think: How am I doing? You know, am I am I doing well? Am I being selfish? Am I being benevolent? Am I being kind? What's going well in my life and what isn't? And you can use those reflections to to guide you. And so I mentioned Wu Yubi. He has this journal. The reason he has this journal is because after reflecting, he would write down the results of his reflections. And so he would use that to keep track of where he was making progress and where he was backsliding. So partly tranquility is just good because it's a, it's a space to think. It's a, a bit of time to yourself. That's so when I hear that statistic at the start about um, people in Britain find themselves just overwhelmed. I mean, that, that, that would be terrible for the Neo-Confucians because it means that we're not getting the time to reflect on our own lives and see where we're doing well and we're doing badly. And the other good thing about tranquility, they thought, relates to sort of a sort of deep element of Neo-Confucianism and it was related to that point about that egalitarianism, everyone can be a sage. It's a very optimistic philosophy. A deep element of Neo-Confucianism is that the belief that everyone is basically good. There's a really benevolent view of human nature. And so um, they thought that when you're in that tranquil state, when you can reflect on yourself and think like, what motivates me? What do I care about? When you reflect on your life that way, you'll see that of yourself. You'll realize, I, you know, I want to live by people's happiness, not by their sadness. Like I would prefer it if things were going well for people. And realizing that of yourself motivates you because now you want to be the sage. The sage just is the person who is always helping make things more kind and peaceful. So tranquility gives you a chance to reflect on where you're doing well and where you're not doing well. And it also kind of motivates you. Um, it, um, it lets you see your own better nature and in that way it inspires you from a sage. And so this is really nice entry from Yubi's journal from late in his life. It was when he was 76 years old. He died when he was 37. He says, relaxing in my pavilion today, I watched the vegetables being harvested. I rested there for a long while, observing my mind in the midst of tranquility. This is the method of nourishing and caring for one's nature. So you can sort of like picture the scene. It's tranquil in the everyday sense. There's 
you know, the sun's going down, he's in his little sun garden, he's watching the day go by, he's reflecting on himself, his own state of mind. And this is like nourishing and, and caring for his own inner nature, which for Confucians is good nature, his own inner benevolence. So that's, that's, that's the tranquility and why it's good for Neo-Confucians, a common sense notion of tranquility, a calm happiness, and it's good because it helps you, gives you time to reflect and realize you want to be a better person. Thank you. So how does that contrast with tranquility in the Epicurean tradition, Alex? Um, yeah, so one point of interesting overlap. Thank you, Liam. Uh, I'm really not so familiar with the tradition that you mentioned, so it's, it's good to hear it uh, spelled out like that. The Epicurean tradition shares with the tradition you mentioned something which is key, I think, which is its we might call it its egalitarian or democratic nature. That is to say that the ideal of tranquility of the good life is in fact achievable by everyone. And moreover, that it involves a type of listening to our nature and one that can be distorted um, and done violence to by false beliefs and by the um, misguided desires that society can ferment in us. So there's, there's something quite similar there, but nonetheless, there are interesting points of contrast as well. Epicurus is known uh, by many uh, people for his hedonism, which is basically the idea that uh, in a nutshell, pain is the only thing that is intrinsically good, or uh, sorry, pleasure is the only thing that's intrinsically good. <clears throat> and uh, that is to say good in and of itself and uh, pain the only thing that is intrinsically evil or bad in and of itself. And so we should structure our life to uh, get the first pleasure and avoid the second pain. But what's really interesting about his, distinctive about his form of hedonism, uh, and we'll, we'll see in the end whether it really is a, a, a form of pure hedonism or not, is that he claims that the highest form of pleasure the most choice-worthy pleasure is attained when uh, you're tranquil. And tranquility, or ataraxia for him, arises when we have an absence of physical pain and mental distress. And he has these quite paradoxical fragments that people dwell on uh, in which he says basically uh, the, the absence of pain and the absence of distress generate the highest pleasure. And that is to many people seem quite puzzling and paradoxical because as some uh, hedonist critics at the time said from the, the Cyrenaics, well, when you're dead, there's an absence of pain uh, and uh, there's an absence of mental distress. So really what you're recommending to us is the condition of a corpse. Um, so and other less scathing commentators People who took him seriously, for example, Cicero, and even contemporary authors think that there's something deeply puzzling about this idea that tranquility or the absence of physical pain and mental distress can lead us to the highest pleasures. So let me explain a little bit how this uh, puzzle can be resolved on the Epicurean view. Epicurus believed that distress will arise in us when we believe that we're likely to face significant evils. And these evils can be things such as great physical pain, but also not having 
our basic needs met, so being hungry, thirsty, uh, lacking for company, being alone, lacking for someone to talk philosophy with, which we thought was a basic need, um, or having what we regard as our most important desires frustrated or fearing that they will be frustrated. And he thinks we will lack tranquility, not merely when these evils befall us, but also, so to speak, anticipating that there's some significant likelihood that they will befall us. So to give you an example from my own life, sometimes I uh, consider, I recently looked up the life tables for the UK. I was a bit late in becoming a dad. I've got three young children, and you might hear in the background at some point. And um, the life tables of the UK inform me that I have a 14% chance of expiring before my children reach adulthood. Now, this I find extremely distressing because it would frustrate one of my most important aims, which is to see them through to adulthood. Um, Now, it follows that if we are to be tranquil, if we are to have the absence of mental distress, we must not believe that we are sufficiently likely to face these significant evils. And now there's various ways of not having this belief. You could simply switch off, not think about it, or suspend belief, which is what some of the skeptics thought at the time. But that's not the approach that Epicureans take. They think instead that you can come to have a justified belief that you are sufficiently invulnerable to these evils, that it is unlikely, below a certain threshold, whatever this threshold is, uh, which is a a precondition for your not being upset or not being distressed about it, you can come to think that it's sufficiently unlikely that you will face any significant evils. And moreover, that cannot be just the result of taking some drugs or uh, adopting a false belief, but it can be a justified belief. So in, in some, you have to become... Uh, justifiably persuaded of your own near invulnerability. That's what generates tranquility, according to Epicureanism. Now, why is it good? Well, I've already discussed this link to pleasure, but you might still ask, well, look, here I am. I regard myself as nearly completely invulnerable in ways that we'll come to. That's our second question. How do you get it? Basically, in Epicurus's view, you shrink your desires to those that you think are likely to be satisfied. You avoid making plans and having long-term aims that could be frustrated by events, for example, by your own death. And you live in a way so that the remaining desires, which will concern your basic needs, will be met. So there's a kind of shrinking of your aims and placing yourself in good positions. But why is this pleasurable? Doesn't it sound like really making yourself kind of really small. Well, I think it's accompanied by several pleasures, and they relate a little bit to some of the things Liam mentioned, but they're also different in interesting ways. One is, if you do so, if you manage to make yourself sufficiently invulnerable, you'll feel safe and in control of your situation, and um, you'll feel content because the contentment arises because you have what you want and what you need, um, and you don't think it will be taken away from you. Secondly, when you're not anxious about evils that might befall you, you can be maximally present. 
you can really enjoy the daily, or so to speak, fleeting pleasures of a pot of cheese. Epicurus was apparently very fond of cheese. The man wrote 60 books, and all we have left is some fragments in the shopping list saying, please get me some cheese. <laughs> um, so we like cheese. Well, cheese will taste uh, wonderful, and doing philosophy will be uh, the most fun it can ever be when you're not distracted by anything else uh, because you are tranquil. So tranquility is a kind of base on which you can build and enjoy the more fleeting everyday pleasures. Um, and that's one difference with the uh, Neo-Confucianism, or perhaps the difference that Liam outlined a kind of episodic period of tranquility which you can create for yourself and you need to create. Epicurus is more concerned about tranquility as the base of your everyday existence, the precondition for enjoying a number of other um, pleasures. And uh, I'll just end with two other pleasures that relate to uh, Epicurean tranquility. One is that he thinks that life, and his followers think that life ordinarily, with its social pressures and all the false beliefs that come, come with it, including beliefs, say, in the afterlife or eventual uh, gods, etc., um, make us anxious. We search for social status. We care whether our colleague calls us an assistant or an associate professor and we're nervous about whether he will use the right title and so on. Um, and once we have achieved tranquility, we can compare our current state of not caring about these things and the uh, kind of peace of mind that it brings with our previous anxious self. Uh, so that state of comparison. We can also compare ourselves with others who are as yet anxious. And Epicurus thinks that this comparison yields pleasures of its own, not necessarily in a supercilious way, but in a way that, for example, if you have an uh, a happy, unperturbed pregnancy. You know that pregnancy is, is often not that way, and you can be thankful or happy comparing yourself with the situation uh, of others without wishing ill on others. Uh, finally, you can take pride in this achievement. So even though it's accessible to everyone and it doesn't require fancy philosophy, it does require an exercise, Epicurus believed, of we might call theoretical and practical reason, right? We need to reason about the way the world is and become persuaded that uh, religion is just a fairy tale, that um, constructions such as social status and uh, the luxury goods that people push on us are entirely unnecessary. In other words, we have to think uh, about the nature of the world and the nature of what's really valuable and then order our desires and our social situation in line with this, uh, this ideal of making yourself maximally invulnerable. And when you do so, you can be proud of that achievement because even though it's open to everyone, it doesn't require any special capacities that, other, that some humans have and others lack. It nonetheless doesn't happen often and it's an achievement of reason. Great, thank you so much. So now, Zina, how does this look in the Christian tradition? We can't hear you, Zina, you're muted. Thank you. Um, yeah, good. <clears throat> the, I would like, first of all, to note there's 
um, quite a lot of overlap between all three of us. I'll just, since I'm the last speaker in this particular question, I'll just take a moment to, to add that up. For one thing, uh, the Christian tradition, like Epicureanism and like the Neo-Confucian tradition Liam is talking about, these are all egalitarian traditions. They're all traditions whereby anyone, no matter what their state of life, can achieve the highest goods, which include in some way or other tranquility. Secondly, and I think more interestingly, as important as tranquility may be to these traditions, it is not a mere feeling. So it's not enough to simply uh, through chemical means or by changing one's environment, put oneself in a situation where one is um, uh, has tranquil experiences at all times. So we can't just all check into um, a spa in the Caribbean for the rest of our lives and so achieve tranquility. Rather, I think for all three of these traditions, tranquility is a kind of a studied achievement. It's something which requires discipline, attention, the development of habits, and the um, what I'd call the discipline of attention. Uh, so uh, cho making choices about what one pays attention to. Um, you know, we all agree, I think, that, that um, paying attention to whether you've been called by the right title, assistant professor, associate professor, it's really not important. It's, it's undermines your tranquility. What on um, earth would make you say we all agree to that? Like, we have <laughs> not all agree to that. Now, now, peace. We need peace between us. <laughs> um, so that's, I think, significant that these these different traditions from very different uh, eras, parts of the world, cultures, and so on, they all agree on these things. It's for everyone, and it's a matter of uh, a disciplined achievement of some kind. It's not um, it's not a matter of just manipulating your experiences uh, through. Um, uh, through drugs, through um, this going to the spa a lot, what have, what have you. Nothing wrong with going to the spa, but um, that's not the point of, of the type of pursuit of happiness, human flourishing, wisdom, and tranquility that we're looking for. So for the Christian tradition, tranquility goes under the name of peace. Um, as in Paul's famous phrase, uh, the peace that passeth all understanding. So insofar as it is something that's experienced, that, that, uh, that we feel as a part of our lives, it's a condition of the will or a condition of the heart, a condition of the soul. Um, and in that sense, it isn't a goal. It's not something that we strive for directly. It's more like an outcome or a side effect of pursuing the correct goals. So that's one difference I think that, that might be drawn between uh, the Christian tradition and, and the other traditions we've looked at. Tranquility is not the goal, it's a, it's a side effect. Um, now, seen another way, I think it, is, it can be seen as the goal because the goal in Christianity is uh, reconciliation with God, uh, love of God, love of one's neighbor, and reconciliation with one's neighbor. And uh, the notion of reconciliation already suggests peace uh, where there was once conflict. Uh, so I'm going to talk a bit about this type of reconciliation and peace and uh, the role of love 
um, in in uh, forming the the goal of Christian life or the um, the picture of Christian flourishing. So uh, likewise, inner disturbance is not a problem as such, but it's a symptom that one is not reconciled uh, in the right way and that one's loves or one's values are out of whack. Um, okay, however, there is a, there's a significant difference between, for instance, the Christian tradition and Epicureanism. And th that is that there are, uh, so to speak, the, the goal of peace is only achieved through what might be thought of as almost a maximizing of suffering. Um, and I'm going to put that out there as the, the bullet biting, the most controversial claim I can, and then I'm going to talk it through so that it doesn't seem so wildly implausible. Um, so uh, since in the Christian tradition, God is the source of all reality and God is good, um, reconciliation with God requires facing reality in all of its breadth and depth. So one has to encounter reality and the truth about uh, the way the world works. Um, and uh, contra Epicureanism, Christianity takes that embracing the suffering of one's neighbor or even taking on more suffering in solidarity with them is a route to reconciliation and peace. Uh, and even more contra uh, even sharper contrast, Christians, uh, are meant to face the greatest of human evils, what it considers to be the greatest of human evils, which is death. So uh, Epicureanism licenses some avoidance of suffering and uh, a, a reasoned view that death is not an evil. And both of those things Christianity rejects. So uh, in order to be encounter with, in order to be in touch with the way the world really is, one is one must suffer. And furthermore, uh, uh, one must also face the fact that death is the greatest of evils. It's not the ultimate evil because past all of that suffering and past the death, past the, the dark realities of the world, there's another reality, which is the goodness of God who orders all things providentially for the best. Um, so it's, it's that ends, it puts me in a compli somewhat complicated position res with respect to the others, because on the one hand, it's perfectly human and not at all unhealthy to be profoundly disturbed by death, grief, suffering, injustice, um, all of the sort of structural defects of the world. Um, but at the same time, one is meant to be always reaching for the deeper reality of the goodness of God that's present in the worst of circumstances. So this is why the peace of God, the peace that's the tr Christian tranquility surpasses all understanding um, because it is, while it is experienced and it is, I think, truly experienced, it's experienced only underneath and below and past profound disturbances. Um, so I think that we, do experience something like this. I think it's not as wooey as it sounds, because I think we do experience something like this whenever we think about we encounter a uh, a truth that we know in our bones is true, and yet somehow or other in some context it's it's under attack or it's become suddenly unclear. But you somehow know in the depths of your bones that this thing is true, and that's the place where 
Christian tranquility, Christian peace lies. It's somehow in in the depths, in some confidence, in contrast often with appearances. So that said, that's I think this chief contrast with, for instance, Epicureanism. Um, there is a similarity, which I think is also similar to the Neo-Confucian tradition, uh, which is that there are types of disturbances which are do not bring you in touch with reality. So uh, there are disturbances such as those caused by social competition, as Alex put it, or um, the shiny beauty of consumer goods um, that one can't afford. Um, there are uh, uh, conflicts which uh, result from our own uh, delusion that we have somehow have godlike power uh, over the world. So we need to be freed from those delusions um, and the suffering that they cause. And we do that through things which might be recognized in the other traditions, through um, taking solitude, through reflection, through prayer, through um, the discipline of attention. Um, so there are disturbances which are, are not helpful. They belong to the realm of social competition and, and they require withdrawal in order to um, retreat, in order to uh, counter them. But there are also disturbances which are somehow close to the heart of reality, which cannot be avoided and in fact might even be necessary to seek them out. Um, so, uh, so we, um, I think that's the main thing I wanted to say. The one thing that I'll just bring out as a in conclusion is, um, th the disturbances which are escapable are those caused by social competition, um, academic rankings and things like that. Um, and those caused by living under the illusion that one has more power than one in fact has. Uh, that one is a godlike being rather than a passive human being. So with that, I, I'll, I'll hand it back to our, our wonderful moderator. Thank you, Tina. That's great. Alex, you have a response to that? You're raising well, your finger. I agree. And it's very useful to bring out some of the <clears throat> points of agreement between our different views. On the last things you mentioned, Zina, maybe are, are shared by all three views, but it's also interesting to develop it on the contrast. And one of these... Uh, of course, important contrast is that I don't know anywhere in the Epicurean literature that suffering is regarded as good, either as a means or, in a sense, as a way of being in touch with an important aspect of, of reality. It really is a very strongly anti-suffering view and, of course, also anti-established religion uh, view. Two, two very strong points of contrast there. But that's also a point where one might take issue with part of the Epicurean view. So Epicurean view, what does it say about our position in a world full of suffering? Well, basically, um, you should try to withdraw as much as you can from people who themselves are vulnerable. Because if you love people who are vulnerable, you will love people who will make you anxious because you will care not merely about what happens to you, of course, but also about what happens to them. At the same time, Epicurean philosophy is actually profoundly social in that he emphasizes again and again how much we require the presence of others, their friendship, not merely for the pleasures of friendship, but to live 
safely and well together and to do philosophy together, which is an essential part of the good life. So what he proposes is withdraw with other Epicureans, people who themselves have learned how to make themselves invulnerable, to, say, the edge of a relatively stable city on a piece of land uh, bequeathed to you so it's stably in your possession, and then you discipline your other desires so that there's not much of the material goods that you need. But basically, you hive yourself off from anyone who, if you were to love them, would make you anxious because they are uh, at risk of becoming you know, uh, needy and badly often and not having their needs met. But how are you doing that if that someone is yourself? So you you mentioned before that you looked up the, the statistics of seeing your, your children grow up and uh, apparently you're missing out in 40% of the cases. So you can't seclude yourself. 40 would really be horrifying. 14, you're still pretty bad. 14, okay. You've got to drop that Russian roulette habit. Uh, Yeah, it's a a Russian roulette, I think. Okay. So, 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 how how do you achieve tranquility in the face of problems that you cannot simply rescale or sort of change the way you think about it rather than change the way the world is? I understand. So, uh, So, that is really the hard question here. So, Epicurus would say, I've already made a mistake. I shouldn't have had kids. Because he recognizes that having children is a source of the type of distress that I experience when I look at the life tables. Okay, that's one thing. Nonetheless, some Epicureans in the community did have kids. And there the answer is, fine, build a community such that their needs will be met whether or not I continue to exist. So I should make sure that uh, my close friends, including Liam, Roman and after the session also Zena will be there to look after them if they need it. And basically, that's also what he did, for example, in his will. He left some of his possessions to the friends, uh, to, the, to the children of a friend. So you can create a world in which you are no longer essential for the things that you care about, which can be other people. That would be uh, his answer. And then Another aspect is that insofar as my own death concerns me, not because of what the effect it would have on my kids, but myself, I should simply change my preferences. And there's an interesting idea that he has there is you can be future-oriented in two different ways. I can want to see Paris, for example, next year. So I don't, I, and my death between now and next year would and many other things, another COVID pandemic could thwart that desire. That you might call it a categorical desire. I could also say, if I'm around next year, I'd like to be in Paris. That's a nice place to be. Uh, That alone, that we call it a conditional desire, isn't frustrated by my death. It would be frustrated by being, say, in, in London, when I would instead want to be in Paris next year but it's not frustrated by my death. And so my future-oriented desires, Epicurus seems to say, you should, as much as possible, conditionalize. If I'm around next year, I want to be able to talk philosophy with my friends. That's a perfectly fine way of orienting myself towards the future. Liam, you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the discussion of, um, you know, how to remain tranquil in, in the event of things like the death of loved ones really brings out uh, one of the things where neo-Confucianism following Confucianism abroadly is is quite distinct. 
and it relates to debates they were having with people who were sort of their philosophical interlocutors, like Taoists and um, some and, and the Buddhists, and where the Taoists and the Buddhists did have ideals about sort of you know you should try and in some ways quite similar sort of there's a way of being in the world where if you really understand its deep nature or if you really condition your desires in the right kind of way you could like always be tranquil you could sort of always enjoy that that sort of thing that sort of peace and the the confucians kind of like actively re- reject that they think it'd be it would be improper to be tranquil in the res- in the face of the death of your children and instead what they encourage is the sincere expression of of social emotions on mourning um, rituals and that they think that we should like build social scaffolding to allow those emotions to be to be expressed to be felt to be to be acknowledged and honored and then for you to move on and so far from sort of like thinking tranquility is the goal they thought there was something inhuman about being tranquil in those kind of scenarios so they they have advice about how to achieve tranquility in the moments where they think that's appropriate is this quiet sitting finding like creating environments of the right kind of sort think of you know will you be in his in his pavilion um and and also this again sort of constancy another thing that's in will you be's journals is be um he, he loved walks in nature where he would sort of try and reflect on things and he said this is a nice passage where he says early in the morning how en- how enjoyable it is to observe the vital impulse of things the waning moon is still in the sky. The dew-drenched flowers fill my view. The subtle appeal of this scene is nothing words can be described. Nothing words can describe. And and you see in this talk of like um, observing the vital impulse of things, that's an example of the Confucian meditation because what that's meant to indicate is he's sort of using technical philosophical language there, but is the the shared sense that like that I'm in a living world and they too are alive and they have their value and. I want to promote their well-being because isn't it beautiful for me? I have this like, connection to them in virtue of living with them. And so, you know, they, they have advice on how to achieve tranquility in these kind of steps. But like, it's a situation where it's like, it's natural to feel tranquil when you're taking a moonlit morning walk and you're amongst dew-drenched beautiful flowers and so on. And so like, they, they don't want you to feel tranquil outside of scenarios like that. One thing I will finally say is, and I think this... There's, I think there's a kind of different similarity and a difference between the sociality which which Alex mentioned, which is Confucianism also is also a very social philosophy. As I said the idea is to be the sage, and the sage is a sort of fundamentally social orientated figure. But Confucianism takes that further. Like it, it's like a deep part of the philosophy that you should be arranging society in a certain kind of like public civic-mindedness or public spirited um actions should shape your career, should shape what you do in your spare time and so on. I mean, I think Confucianism is literally the only great tradition of philosophy where one of the classic books literally contains a detailed taxation plan. Like that's, you know, that's Confucianism. They're, they're for real about this thing being matter of civic mindedness. And so I do think they would be important, given the sort of like very this worldly nature of what it takes to get tranquility and the importance of tranquility to become a sage, they would think it would be important to, for instance, do things socially to ensure that everyone is such that they have access to a bit of time to themselves, that they're not constantly harried in the way we are nowadays. They maybe have access to things like trips to the countryside sometimes, if that's necessary. But, um, you know, just to sort of note, I think there is that difference in sociality and also this kind of sense that you shouldn't always be tranquil. Tranquility is a good, but a good in the right moment and a good if used to the right end, but not a permanent state of being. 
So that's so interesting. Idea, I may, yeah. me just a, a, a moment to come in, if I, if I may. There's this interesting contrast now between, you might call it the degree of engagement with the world. Epicureanism makes your world quite small. You seek out only other Epicureans who will themselves be tranquil, and you live on the edge. You might even call it a parasite on a stable society with this small group of others. Zena has outlined a form of Christian engagement with the suffering of the world, but you actually you know, seek out um, engagement with others and feel in solidarity along with them, including in suffering. And Liam seems to be identifying a kind of space in between those two extremes of withdrawal and engagement um, for the three views. Do, do, do you agree that this is one way of ordering the views? Yeah, I, that makes sense because he's sort of not quite the full withdrawal, but nor is there nor is there anything like a demand that you empathetically identify with the suffering of all the worst off. There's more just something you should be benevolent, you should try and arrange things such that there's less suffering, but there's not that sort of there's nothing like the Christian agape, the the self-sacrificial element of of the good life in I don't think. Yeah, Tina, you want to come in here? So what do you think about this ranking of the positions that we have got here? Oh, I didn't hear a ranking. As long as I end up number one, I don't I don't. Or an ordering, I mean, so in terms of uh, <laughs> remoteness that we seek. That makes sense. The one thing I'm struggling a bit with and, and trying to figure out how to formulate is, of course, there's a uh, in the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Coptic traditions, there's also a monastic tradition, um, which does involve a more strict kind of withdrawal um, in rural areas or on the boundaries of the city. Um, and I'm, I'm, I was trying on the fly to do the footwork to connect that with the spirituality of engagement, um, which I began with. Um, and I'm just going to flag it as a question um, for now. I, I actually have a book coming out on this in the, at the end of the year. So maybe we, I could just ask people. <laughs> Sorry. In my in my tranquil contact with the most important human values, I can tell you by my book. Yeah. So and and rank me number one. Very good. So that brings us to another practical question. So what role does or should tranquility play in our lives? So where is it helpful? Where is it unhelpful? Liam already alluded to it, so the Confucians we don't want to think that tranquility is the right reaction everywhere all the time. So where is it good? Where is it bad? And also how can we remain tranquil in the face of disasters like the pandemic or the war that we're experiencing at the moment? So how should we place tranquility vis-a-vis -vis that? Zina, um, um, do you want to start us on this point? Sure. I think that the key move is to discern the source of disturbance uh, and that's that's a real challenge that's not a, a there's not a um, cheat sheet or teacher's edition which tells you the difference but there are disturbances which um, one needs to withdraw in order to escape the disturbances caused by um, competition and uh, the, the libido dominandi, the desire to dominate or to control, um, the, the illusion that I can conquer my vulnerabilities um, through my own efforts, 
by by uh, developing a sort of godlike power over other things, and that can it, that can infect our view of what's going on in the world around us. And I think it's very we're very vulnerable to it in our current situation with uh, social media, where all all suffering appears to us on the screen as somehow comparable, whereas in fact. Um, that can lead a give us a temptation to contempt us to um, to get to expend enormous emotional energy being disturbed about things over which we have no control um, and can make no impact. Now, for a Christian, there's always the possibility of offering something in prayer, so putting something before God. But there's also a big difference in terms of the the spirituality of engagement between something which is is quite far away. So I, I through my Twitter account, I get very worked up about something which is totally out of my control, very far away, very grievous, very serious, very true. And I'm that allows me to ignore things which might be more difficult for me to confront. For instance, um, the situation in the housing project down the street, the um, the situation of the people in the nursing home uh, a few miles away, uh, the local pr the con local prison conditions and so on. Uh, so so I th I think Christianity has a, a strong sense of the local as far as engagement is concerned. That's where loving service, which is one of the key means of tranquility, um, you need. Uh, there's a sort of um, sphere in which loving service is possible. It's not everywhere. Uh, apart from through prayer. So one has to figure out where that is possible, where one has uh, the power and capacity to, to love and, and to serve others and to take on their suffering in the right way. So I, I think that's probably the key takeaway for the current moment is to try to discern what what is um, what is available <laughs> to uh, respond to in a Christian manner out of love and so achieve uh, the tranquility of uniting with one's neighbor in love. And what is really distracting you by uh, allowing you to imagine that you have uh, fr have control that somehow been irrationally frustrated over something which is very distant from you. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'll put that out there and, and see what the others have to say. Yeah, how does that compare to the Confucians for instance? Um, yeah, so I think there's, there's certainly the point of um, similarity in terms of uh, a requirement of sort of service and engagement with one's community, one's immediate community. And so an, an old idea of Confucianism, sort of before the Neo, the just Confucianism, is this idea of extending your benevolence, where the idea is that a, a good person sort of practices being benevolent on those close to them. And once they find it, they find it sort of natural and easy to sort of be kind to family members, friends, um, media circumstances, then they try to expand the sphere of people to whom they could extend this benevolence. And the thought is this, this process of like gradually extending out and out until ideally your benevolence would reach all under heaven is the phrase that like every, everyone, um, is that it means you sort of like you take on more and more tasks as you're able to do them. As you found yourself someone in a position with the emotional capacity to do these things and, and practice extending it, it's like, it's more and more difficult the further you go from your immediate sphere and 
maybe if you're in your life, you never really reach all under heaven. Maybe that's not something that's available to you unless you're sort of literally the emperor. Um, that's okay as long as you get as far as you can. And so that sense that it's sort of, there's a sphere of what you can do and it, it might not be everywhere. I think that that's something which is in common. Um, I, th I think one other thing which Confucianism would have for this tranquility for what it does and what, what it can help us do for us today is one thing that tranquility, where it's possible, as I said, Confucianism doesn't think it's always going to be possible for you, but where it's possible for you, um, one thing that it can help you do is really take moral stock of your life, really, really, um, really reflect on like, okay, where am I just going with the flow? And where would my principles actually tell me that, no, this isn't right? And so one of the things that's often extolled in Confucian, the people who are held up as Confucian heroes, are ministers in bad governments who stand up to their ruler um, and refuse to obey orders um, and lose their lives for doing it. They're held up as martyrs and they're really sort of celebrated exactly because the thought is that sort of they acted according to genuine principle. They had it in them to reflect on like what's actually the right thing to do. And even when all of the incentives of power and, and pressure and worldly pain were going against them, they followed what was right and they followed what was the, the true principle. And I think that in a world in which we're all being, we're all being hurried along, we're all being harried, um, we're all being um, subject to like an unprecedented kind of social pressure, which is, the constant surveillance of social media and the fact that everything we do is in some sense publicly accessible online, at least to some people. Um, having that time to reflect on like, no, what do I value? What, what's actually, what do I really think is good? Like apart away from the maddening crowd, that can be important. That can be important to maintaining a kind of integrity, which it's easy to lose nowadays. And so I think that um, in addition to that sort of sphere of, Civic, civic engagement, which Zina outlined, which I think is good and important. I think for Confucians, this kind of means of maintaining one's own integrity, um, that's a thing which it can do. That seems to be a rather different conception from the Epicurean one, no? Absolutely. So let's talk about tranquility as a source of pleasure again, which is more, I think, I try at least, uh, my own life is decidedly untranquil. Uh, I, some people have pointed out to me that I started writing on Epicurean tranquility after the birth of our first child and the uh, twins followed after, during a COVID lockdown. And then for my sins, I became head of department. So I'm decidedly also the, the least tranquil person um, you'll meet. So what can I gain from this Epicurean view? Obviously, I haven't practiced the ethics of withdrawal or surrounding myself only with invulnerable others. Um, what can I then, or someone like me who does choose more engagement with the world or has it thrust upon them, still learn from the Epicurean view? Well, one is <clears throat> that it is actually perfectly possible to be a loving Epicurean, and indeed Epicurus extols love uh, for others. But then if one loves them, one has to try to make them less vulnerable. So think back to this, my distress about my own, the chance of dying on behalf of my kids, right? I think, well, I want to see them through to adulthood. Well, the Epicurean response to that is make sure that you create a social network so that you're no longer essential to their well-being, and that will eliminate at least one source of that distress. So 
Um, this idea, this general strategy of, of gaining tranquility, which for Epicurean seems to be all or nothing, but I, in my own life, practicing it, I think about it as a matter of degree. Gaining tranquility by, uh, by generating a form of invulnerability. That's to say, um, making it the case that certain things which I would regard as evil, if they were to occur, are less likely to occur, partly by changing my own aims, but partly maybe by changing my my situation, my social network, um, I think is, re- is a really valuable strategy and one that it's, it's, I could recommend not to generate this kind of complete sense of invulnerability and the pleasures that accompany it, but rather I find that it's a matter of degree. I can make myself less anxious by uh, the type of changes that Epicureanism recommends. And the other real insight that I... That, that rang true to me once I was reading it, this big question about uh, what Epicureans call this distinction between static and kinetic pleasures. And uh, tranquility is a form of static pleasure, a kind of base, a fundament. I mentioned before that there was this then question, do they not value the kinetic pleasures, the pleasures of a good conversation, the sunlight striking your face, a walk in the... Uh, as the the moon is fading with dew-covered flowers and stuff like that. Those are kinetic or or fleeting pleasures. Rather, the idea is, no, we can enjoy those more and also our friendships more, our work more, when we we get the things that make us anxious out of the way. And so it's a kind of opening up that comes when you remove some, at least insofar as you can, some sources of anxiety which I also find a very valuable lesson in Epicurean view, which on the whole I don't endorse because I think too much of it is, is about withdrawal and making yourself safe when the world, perhaps if you really engage with it, is just not a safe place. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Thank you very much, all the panelists, for the discussion of this um, difficult concept. So we're now closing hours of discussion between us and the open towards the audience. So we have... um, a few questions that have been put in the Q&A and we're now turning to these. So thank you to everybody who submitted a question. So the first question is for Omar Mane Vala and he says, this is a question to Zina. So he says, constant tranquility may not be an optimal objective and excitement and disturbances can themselves be virtues depending on context. Does the Christian spiritual tradition include this notion of tranquility as a sometimes rather than continually desirable virtue? Uh, Yes, thank you, Omar. Uh, I think that the type of tranquility that Christianity uh, seeks is sufficiently deep and robust that it as I was trying to say in my opening remarks, 
it lies underneath or behind. It's compatible with all kinds of things which would, strictly speaking, count as a disturbance. So, um, for instance, the, the the grief and pain of death, uh, or the um, the shock of injustice. So the it's it's meant to be permanent. We should always have uh, this kind of tranquility or peace because we should always be at bottom reconciled with God uh, and uh, see and trust in the depths of our bones that all uh, that all somehow is going to work out for the good. Um, now, excitement, um, high energy. Uh, it's it's not necessarily bad. Um, it it can be and it cannot be. I think here. I think I would just I would actually go a bit to what I would call the the philosophical supporting structure of much traditional Christianity and say, well, you know, excitement can be a generator of of cognitive illusion, right? So, in your excitement, you cannot see what's in front of you. You can lose touch with reality. Um, if you're in touch with reality and you're excited, go for it. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, but you have to be aware of, and I think probably all the traditions that we're talking about today are like this. You have to be aware of how your disturbing emotions may affect your your contact with what's real and what's true. Thanks. It's also a question for Liam, I think, because in the Neo-Confucian tradition, there is a lot to be said about this. Um, yeah, um, so there is. So sort of, how, sort of like, under what conditions would you have sort of the opposite of tranquility being got? Well, I've already mentioned mourning rituals. So Confucianism um, it is famous for having very elaborate requirements on what sort of mourning one does or does not um engage in depending on who's died and how they died and it's actually often been a point of attack by reformers who think it sort of demands too much actually in terms of excessive sorrow and displays thereof um and uh that uh that that kind of um that generalizes it's not the only case where they'll, they'll say that other emotions or other kind of reactions are, are appropriate so one of the sort of famous foundational texts, the same one of the tax plan of um, con of Confucianism is the Mangza, the, the book of the recorded by the, the great sage Mangza, uh, Mangza or Mencius as he's sometimes called. And, and he has this example of like um, this is part of his evidence actually that everyone is fundamentally good, the sort of fundamental benevolence of human nature. Or he says, okay, imagine you're walking through a field and in a distance you see a well and you see a toddler just playing on the edge of the well. Um, and Zina's reaction there was perfect because it's like, wouldn't your immediate reaction be like concern and alarm for the kid before you like can think of like, oh, the benefit, the parents will really benefit me if I rescue this kid and get them back. Or before you could think of like any sort of ulterior motive, your just immediate response is like, oh, that kid's in danger. That, that's not good to me. And, and he's giving that as an example of like a good thing about you. It's, it's good that when you respond that way with alarm, I think it's, it's usually translated as like with alarm, that's a sort of high high activation emotion that's saying something good about you that's saying that you care about this person just because they're a person there's no other reason for it you just care um and so for for Mangza, that that's one example and i think the tradition just full of things like that funerals or care for people in danger where 
yeah, tranquility is sometimes the response they think you should feel, but other times they think these very different kinds of emotional states are the, the appropriate emotional state for that situation. Thank you. So the next question is from Christina Easton, and she asks whether tranquility is the preserve of grown-up humans. And so that's the question, obviously, how this works out with the children. But then she also adds in a, in a bracket, is it an implication of the Epicurean view that animals can be tranquil? So what are we saying here, Alex? Uh, that's a fascinating question, Christina. Thanks for raising it. I mean, Epicureanism is uh, very much focused on treating us as animals, and they think we can learn something from animals. So in the Epicurean tradition, they often say, uh, look, animals are extremely concerned at seeking what is pleasurable for them through, say, eating what they need, drinking what they need, etc., hanging out with other animals, socializing, we should follow our animal nature in that regard and not be distracted by the things that society, so to speak, layers on top of that. We should rather be in touch with our, our basic desires, which are for our basic needs. So they think, in, in one sense, they hold animals up as exemplars. And from memory, I'd have to look up, but I think there are also such passages in relation to, to children and babies as being, for example, um, you know, seeking their basic needs met. Um, and so we should focus on those things too. Now, that doesn't mean that they're tranquil. It means that they're, they can serve as an example of being in touch with the desires that, they, that uh, Epicureans call natural and necessary, and that they think we should focus on at the exclusion of the, the uh, unnatural ones or the what he calls the natural and unnecessary ones. Um, now, the type of tranquility, though, that Epicurus is, is after and values most highly, I think has to be the result of the exercise of, of reason as well, in a way and a type of reason that children, neither children nor animals possess. So the especially valuable achievement that he thinks that comes from understanding the world uh, rightly, from setting yourself to the right ends and disciplining your desires and choosing practically to live wisely in a way so that those desires will not be frustrated, is an exercise of, of as I called it before, you know, philosophy, theoretical and practical reason, which only uh, reasonable beings are capable of. And so I think uh, young adults can already achieve it. There's a celebrated celebration of one of the Epicurean fragments of a young man who's already achieved a, a, a tranquility. But uh, it, you do require these capacities of reason. Uh, Liam, do you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, so I, I'll say, I'll answer if we've got to age in more detail because there's a lot to say about that in Confucianism. But um, with regard to animals, there's, there's lots of passages where Confucian scholars are sort of very impressed by the fact that animals seem to have their own version of ritual propriety. So they would notice things like mating dances and think that like animals also think there are sort of appropriate and inappropriate ways to go about courting someone. And that they thought was evidence that sort of 
me too I'm sort of fit into the natural order in such a way that there's a sort of better and worse way of being an animal and um the ones which achieve the better way of being an animal presumably that that's good for the animal um but I don't know if they I just don't know I mean I it could go either way if there's much on like the inner mental life of that animal I, I just don't know if that's the thing they thought about on the other hand there's a very very famous set passage from the Analects the book of sayings of Confucius um where he he says um at 15 I set my heart upon learning at 30 I had planted my feet firm upon the ground at 40 I no longer suffered from perplexities at 50, I knew what were the biddings of heaven. At 60, I heard them of Dosalir. And at 70, I could follow the dictates of my own heart for what I desired no longer overstepped the boundaries of right. The point there being, it's, it's like a long road to, to, to being a good person. This is Confucius. Like he's like, you know, the top dog. And it, it took him until he was in his 70s until he could sort of like confidently just follow his heart. And so insofar as we think of tranquility as the kind of the contentment, the sort of, the satisfied contentment of the sage who knows they're doing what the best they can in their circumstances, that's really not available to people, maybe ever, but certainly not until they're very accomplished and they're sort of very well trained. But if I think of this in terms of, you know, tranquility in the sense of being able to engage in quiet meditation where you could feel relaxed and at ease, then I, I guess, you know, at 40, I no longer suffered from perplexities, sounds about that. So it seems that they sort of think that at some point in adulthood, you become sort of capable of calming yourself and being sufficiently reflective that you can sort of engage with the tradition in the right kind of way. But it takes work even to get there. So sort of just like tranquility itself is a sort of stepping stone to becoming a sage, so too there are things you have to do in order to be the kind of person who can achieve that kind of equilibrium. You need to be sort of set up on learning. You have to be sort of dedicated. You have to have what Zina called the attentional discipline. And, and it can take time to, to develop those skills. So I think that with animals, they might be more inclusive, but for age, they do think it's, it takes time to age into achieving tranquility. Very good, thank you. So the next is sort of a provocative question from Wojtek, who is asking, is it, it's relatively easy to talk about tranquility on a beautiful May evening in London. Yeah. Isn't this um, hypocritical and reeking of a privilege, though? How can a person in Ukraine be tranquil or someone with a bad or ill child? So who wants to have a stab at this? Wait, I, I'm going to because I get the easiest answer here which is the Confucianism is the tradition which just agrees, which just says, yes, in those situations, mourning, or as you know, if you're in Ukraine, there's a lot of death and suffering. So mourning for what's lost is, for instance, a totally appropriate attitude or concern and agitation and, and angst would be the situation for a parent of an ill child. Um, so I think that um, the Confucians would just agree. It would be sort of an inappropriate reaction if you're in those very different circumstances, it's only because we're enjoying this relative privilege, I mean, not relative, this, this privilege, um, which makes tranquility sort of a, appropriate and apt. Um, so I get the easiest one of just agreeing. Now you two try and defend yourselves. <laughs> um, I can. Oh. That's the most profound answer. Yeah, well, Tina, go, go for it. Oh, I, <laughs> well, um, I think that the promise of Christianity, if one can accept it, is that um, tranquility of the deepest kind is available to everyone 
even and maybe even especially in the worst circumstances. So there's no quailing or worrying about whether this is a matter of, of privilege. Um, in fact, those of us with privileges are, are uh, in some sense called to encounter the suffering that's <coughs> elsewhere. I just want to say one thing which connects to the previous th uh, question, just to kind of clarify what I mean by tranquility in the face of um, uh, suffering. Uh, and it, it, the example might seem trivializing. I don't mean it to be, but it's just a clear example. Um, so, you know, in the Gospels, it says, unless you become like a little child, uh, you shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so there's a kind of childlikeness that's uh, an achievement. Now, it's not, it's, it's a certain kind of trustfulness or a certain kind of surrender to what's going on. Uh, only a certain kind, but a certain kind. Uh, so one example, from my own life, I, f I fell into a swimming pool when I was four years old, uh, didn't know how to swim. Uh, and in a child, a perfectly childlike way, I floated on my back and asked for help. I didn't thrash, I didn't panic. Um, and I, I think that for children, that's often the product of denial or delusion. So you 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 know you pretend that everything's fine, even if those of those of us who grew up in very dysfunctional environments know everything really isn't fine. In fact, you were in tons of danger. In fact, I could have drowned, um, but you kind of pretend it isn't true. So the the achievement of Christianity, Christian tranquility, is to face reality uh, in all of its darkness and all of its terror and all of its horror, and find in the depths of one's bones trust in the goodness of God and the goodness of the flow of events. So, uh, and that's, that's a kind of childlikeness, a kind of trustful surrender um, that, that makes that possible. What do the ancient Greek master say about this, Alex? Oh, uh, the ancient Greek master Epicurus would say there is, no such trust is warranted um, because there is no higher power, at least not that doesn't engage with the world or order things providentially so that we can somehow trust that it will all turn out okay. There, there are two part answers to uh, Vocek's question. One is if you are the parent of a badly ill child, it's natural for you to be extremely concerned. And therefore in a sense, if they're, uh, if they're facing great suffering ahead of them, you will not be tranquil. So uh, that's partly why Epicurus seems, at least in the fragments we have, to recommend not having children, because it's inevitable that you will love them and in your love become vulnerable to their suffering. So in these circumstances, but once you do have this seriously ill child, you should uh, and also will feel uh, lack tranquility. Um, so in that regard, according to Epicurus, you will then not be leading the best possible life. But I think in a sense that's, uh, in a sense, uh, if you accept his extremely kind of self-centered view, that is correct. As in your your life is not going as well as it as it could. But I think this is where the criticism of Epicureanism as a life guiding life philosophy comes in. Um, it might be much better to have children, to have love for vulnerable friends, people who might cause come to harm, etc., to be really engaged with people who are uh, 
uh, oppressed or, or fleeing terror in a way that disturbs your tranquility. Um, because it's a way of, of engaging with things of, of value and with people's importance and with the importance of eliminating their suffering that Epicureanism really doesn't allow. So in that sense, I think there's really room for a criticism of the Epicurean idea of withdrawal in order to make yourself and those very close to you tranquil. Um, because it's it's too much of a cutting yourself off from others. There's an interesting passage where he celebrates the triumph of uh, the over fate that you achieve when you're an Epicurean sage. You might say, well, this triumph happens only because you've decided to occupy an especially small piece of land. Uh, and it may be, in a sense, braver and more worthy of our admiration to be more engaged with the world and therefore... Um, run the risk of, uh, of suffering along with others. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time here. We still have a lot of unanswered questions. I'm very sorry if we didn't get to your question, but we have to bring the session to a hopefully tranquil end here. I want to thank the audience for coming to the panel, um, those who ask questions, and of course our panelists for sharing their knowledge and tranquility with us. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.